Before we get rolling here, let's take a quick minute to talk about the Stars and Stripes Chrome Soft Truvis golf ball that Callaway released last month. It's one of the coolest looking golf balls I've seen, and it features Callaway's popular Truvis pattern in the patriotic red, white, and blue design, which is fitting as all of Callaway's Chrome Soft balls are made here in the U.S., and of course it is U.S. Open Week. In fact, the Callaway players are going to be using these Truvis balls on the range this week. The ball features everything you love about the performance of Chrome Soft, including the graphene-infused outer core. This allows Callaway to engineer an incredible-feeling golf ball that's low spin off the tee with the increased shot-stopping spin around the green. These golf balls are often offered in limited quantities, are available for purchase at select retailers and online. Visit CallawayGolf.com for more info and be sure to pick up yours before they're gone. Let's get to the podcast. Be the right club. Be the right club today. That's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything different. All right, guys, we're going to get shortly here to our interview with Mike Davis. We had about 25 uh, 25 minutes with him this morning. This is Monday of U.S. Open Week. Uh, So we're going to play that for you and then stick around to after that. uh, The whole crew here is going to talk a bit about what Mike had to say. We're going to talk U.S. Open setups and whatnot. So, But uh, for now, let's get to Mike Davis. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. We're joined today, uh, maybe the busiest man in the world this week, the CEO of the USGA, Mr. Mike Davis. Uh, Mike, I know you're going to get a ton of questions about the US Open and all that. We're going to get into that, but I kind of want to get into first a bit of your background, how you grew up in the game of golf, what kind of golf courses you like to play, where you play now, and kind of your, your own personal history with the game of golf. Well, listen, I started out, first of all, it's great to be with you, and I, I started out at a fairly young age. I think I was maybe eight eight years old, and I used to tag along with my fa- father, and this was in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, so they were members of Chambersburg Country Club, and from a very young age, I fell in love with the game. Uh, you know, I played junior golf and then went on to play college golf, but, um, you know, I've loved it from the perspective of... of um, I, I love the competition. Um, obviously, you know, followed the the PGA Tour for many years, and I can remember my father taking me to the 1975 Ryder Cup, and I went to the 1980 and 1981 U.S. Opens that were held at Baldusrol and Marion, respect, respectively. Um, and I, you know, there was another part of it I, I always enjoyed was just studying golf courses. I, I, from a very young age, had a love of, of golf courses and architecture. And, you know, it's such a unique thing about our game that other sports really don't offer is that the, the playing field is so different in our sport versus others that, uh, and it's something even to this day, um, you know, I, you know, I still love playing the game, but I, I find myself oftentimes out on a golf course, particularly those that I haven't seen before, looking around at the architecture and, and uh, thinking about what the, the person who designed it and built it was thinking on certain things and, you know, different grasses, you know, the, the humps and bumps. And, and, and so from a very, very young age, I've, I've just been enamored with the game and, and continue to be to this day. 
So what is you know one of the obviously your your main responsibilities over the years has been being in charge of these the course setup for the U.S. Open, and we're just kind of curious as to what your game is like. The guy that's kind of in charge of all the setups. Are you a bomber? Are you pretty straight hitter? Like what what is your golf game like? Well, listen. <laughs> As I've gotten older, I'm I'm getting shorter and more crooked. So, um, is that why the fairways are getting wider at the U.S. Open? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's my my, I need more width. But um, you know, I you know I I did play competitive golf, but certainly did not play at the level of of these U.S. Open players. But I've been around it, you know, most of my life. And and while I I can't play to their level of the game anymore. I do understand their game. So I, you know, when, when I can understand and I, and I watch a lot, you know, if they're hitting a six iron, I understand by and large what they can do with that six iron, the trajectory they can hit it, how fast they can stop it. You know, I think that by and large understand again, can't play anymore um, at that level. But, but I think that just, there's such an interest, you know, in that game at the elite level that, you know, listen, I, I would say in terms of golf course setup, I, I've always felt that for somebody to have competency in it, they really needed four different things. And one of that is to understand the players that are playing in, in a given event. So if you're setting up the U.S. Open or you're setting up the U.S. Women's Open, or you're setting up a, you know, uh, your club championship at your golf course, you need to understand the capabilities of the players playing. Um, a second thing, I really do firmly believe that having an interest in an understanding in golf course architecture is is very important in terms of setting up a golf course. You really have to get into the mind of what what did the architect want each hole to be played? What, what you know, was it a green that's accepting of a very long shot that you can bounce in? Is it is it typically played downwind, or is it you know is it is it a smaller green that's maybe fronted with a bunker or a water hazard that you have to fly and and you know with that in mind, how firm can the greens be? And you know you you work your way from the green back to the drive zone and say, you know, what did the architect? want the drive zone to be and then you work your way back to the bunker you know excuse me to the team ground so in in some ways to set up a golf course you really do have to dissect each hole and think about how that hole fits and then there's a cadence to the golf course is that you know you don't necessarily want a bunch of long holes in a row you want a nice balance a nice rhythm ebb, ebb and flow and then beyond architecture, um, you really do need to understand agronomics. You need to understand grasses. And, and I say that because grasses react differently. I mean, it, a, a ryegrass rough, for example, is very different from a bluegrass rough. And when you get a wet ryegrass rough, the club slips through it, you know, just easy. When, when ryegrass gets dry, it gets very tacky. Bluegrass tends to be a little thicker, and particularly when it's wet. Bermuda grass, the ball in the rough tends to sink down. Um, fescue grass, um, you know, tends to just go dormant if it doesn't get enough water versus other grasses will literally die on you. So understanding all those things about grasses and how, you know, maybe on the putting green, you know, if there's a blend of poana versus bent, you know, how's that going to affect the role of the ball late in the day? Versus maybe it's a Bermuda grass green and there's there's grain in it and how does that affect things? So 
knowing agronomy really is important. And then the last part is just it's mother nature. It's understanding what the weather might do to the golf course and your setup. So, you know, is it is it a hole that's into the wind or downwind? Is it a crosswind? Um, what's what's the evaporation rate on a given day and how much is the golf course going to dry out? So if it's a humid day with cloud cover, you know, you can you can put a little, little less water on the golf course if, if you're lucky enough to have firm conditions and maybe get away with it. But, you know, here's an example this week at, at uh, Shinnecock where this is a sand-based golf course. It dries out quickly. It's a windy golf course. And so for us, understanding how quickly moisture leaves the ground is very important because we, we want to make sure that the golf course is a proper test, not only in the morning, but also in the afternoon. So all those play into, you know, what we look at when we're setting up the golf course. So uh, along those lines, I know we were at the, up at the media day and you talked a little a bit about uh, C.B. McDonald and William Flynn and the history of Shinnecock Hills restoring, restoring shot values. And I think people are going to see a much different Shinnecock Hills in 2018 than we did in, tw- in 2004. But I want to know how much of that change is the club, is, is Shinnecock Hills responsible for? How much of those changes are the USGA responsible for? And what are the changes that you felt needed to be made in your mind? Well, a great question. You know, this you start with, this, this is one of the greatest golf courses in the United States, and for that matter, in the world. Um, th- this is the only golf course that's hosted the U.S. Open in three different centuries. Um, this, is a, this is a club and a golf course that's had a profound effect in really the, the formation of golf in the United States. You go back, I mean, it's one of the five founding clubs of the USGA. It hosted the second U.S. Open, the second U.S. Amateur, 1896. And I could go on and on in in terms of its history and and its prominence and how it's affected and impacted the game. But, you know, fast forward to today and, and really where this course is and to your question, the club has done a magnificent job in really restoring the grandeur of this William Flynn design. Now, William Flynn came in in 1929 and essentially redesigned a course, and it was moved a little bit north of um, of where it sits right now um, because there was a, literally a you know a railroad come through, and, and frankly, you know the game had changed with innovations with clubs and balls, but you know, what, what Flynn designed in 1929 and ultimately opened in 1931, if you looked at an aerial from that time, and we, we have looked at aerials from that time, you'd quickly find that um, they have literally, whether it's the size of greens or getting bunkering into play again, and it's been a remarkable restoration. And um, I, you know, that has really been the club itself. And, and we, you know, we certainly didn't direct it, but we applauded that. So I think, um, you know, in terms of restoration, what's different about this U.S. Open than what you would have seen in 2004 or 1995 or even going back to 1986 is that you've got bunkering that is now in play uh, where it's not covered up by rough anymore the way it is. I mean, it, it had almost just become these narrow hallways that, you know, that I, I think William Flynn, if, if he had been alive, probably would not have approved them. And now 
there's so many angles. There's a lot. Of, there's just frankly more strategy. The greens over the years had become round ovals, and now all of a sudden, you know, the club has taken it back to the original. And and they, you know, they did work some with Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw that were very helpful. But the credit really goes to Shinnecock Hills um, and a few key members here that really wanted to see that great William Flynn design uh, return. So. Um, you know, I would say that our our input really was just looking at it from the standpoint of how how we would set the U.S. Open up. We we did add uh, ten new team grounds for this Open, so you know it's slightly over four hundred yards additional yardage. And and I would tell you that we did that not because we wanted more yardage and, and necessarily wanted to make it harder. We did it because it made sense to really get the course back the way the architect wanted to play. So there was frankly some drive zones that if we had not added yardage, you know, it, you know, bunkering would have just been taken out of play. And there are, you know, there are, there's a handful of holes here at, at Shinnecock that have incredible angles to them. And we were able to, with some new tees to get some of these, you know, these bunkers back into play where, for instance, if you play more left on a drive zone, there's a bigger carry over a cross bunker, but you get a much better angle into the green. So there's a little risk reward that the players are going to have and some options. And so at the end of the day, while it will look a little different, um, we think it's just going to play beautifully. And, and from what we've heard from players so far, they're, they're loving the golf course and the architecture. For for those that I'm, mean, it's well documented that the the fairways are averaged about 26 yards wide in t- 2004, and they're going to average 41 yards wide uh, for the 2018 U.S. Open. But even before uh, the USGA began the setup, the fairways I think were averaging somewhere around 61 yards wide, uh, which you guys came in and did narrow them some in a lot of locations. Uh, was that any in any way a reaction to potentially the very low scores that came out of uh, Aaron Hills last year with the uh, with the abnormally uh, largely at the abnormally wide fairways you know i listen in part i I think it was um but it wasn't so much the scoring as it was when you know when we look back at aaron hills which is a wonderful golf course um great architecture there obviously a new golf course you know that that traditionally was an exceptionally windy site and it and it's it too sits on a very well-draining sandy kind of gritty soil and, you know, our experience had been last year that it was such a windy, firm site that you had to give the players more width for them or it just could become an unfair experience. And, you know, as it turned out last year, um, the wind really was kind of a non-factor and we got a lot of rain. So it just played slower and frankly wider because it was soft conditions without wind. And I think as we look forward to this year, um, it was interesting because... We knew we were going to have a wider golf course because of the because of the restoration, and we applauded that restoration here at Shinnecock Kills. On the other hand, um, I think we you know accuracy is part of a U.S. Open test. It's not the whole thing, but it is part of the test. And we felt that there were just some holes that needed to be narrowed. And and by the way, when we talk about that twenty six yards average width. 14 years ago versus 41 now, it's not as if every every hole is 15 yards wider. There are some that are, you know, 
down in that 26, 25 yards in width. And there are others, I mean, we, I, we have, I can think of a couple that are 60 yards wide, but they don't play that wide because it's all about angles saying you take the eighth hole, for example. Well, that's 62 yards wide, but if you take it down the left side, you've got to carry it some 300 yards in the air to make that part of the fairway. But if you can, and generally it's into the wind, um, you get a great angle into the green versus if you play kind of up the middle of the hole, it may be a 270-yard carry. And if you play down the right of the hole, it's it's 220 yards to carry it. So, you know, while that may be a 62-yard wide fairway, it from the player standpoint, they're having to pick a certain distance with an angle. So it doesn't really necessarily play that wide. And and, and I'll also say, because the course does sit on sand and it's windy, whatever these widths are, they, they play narrower than what they really are because the ball's going to be bouncing. And again, it's trying to control your, 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 your trajectory and your shape of the shot. And wind is, as we all know, is obviously more difficult. Yeah, I think one of the things that gets lost even amongst the best players in the world is when they see wide fairways, their brain turns to I can hit it anywhere I want now and not start not thinking about some of the things that you that you emphasize there about playing up the right sides of holes and, and angles and whatnot. So I do like seeing that element brought back to it and kind of more and more of a test than just hit it long and straight every single hole. But one of the topics you touched on here was kind of the shapes of the greens and how some of that was restored, but also how some of the green surrounds uh, are going to look different than they did in 2004 with a lot more short grass and the opportunity for that ball to roll away from the hole and have a little bit more challenge, a different kind of challenge uh, with the approach shots around the greens. Can you talk a bit about the philosophy behind maybe not as much thick, heavy, rough, near green sites and the different look that we're going to see uh, this year for the U.S. Open? Sure. Well, th- this is really going back to trying to be true to what the architect wanted. So if you go back and you look at Shinnecock Hills, this is what William Flynn designed, um, you know, years ago. And, and this is being true. And what's interesting is this doesn't mean that every year you're going to see this happen. I mean, next year, at Pebble Beach at the U.S. Open, you will see thick rough, generally speaking, around the greens when the following year, you know, those elevated greens with a lot of contours at wing foot, um, with the flash bunkers, uh, the thick rough around the greens, that's what wing foot is. And that's what Pebble Beach is. So this year, this is what Shinnecock Hills is. And what's interesting is that, you know, intuitively you'd say, well, if there was rough around the greens, it would make it harder. And I think most of these players would agree here that, when you get firm, fast conditions and you get these closely mown areas where the ball all of a sudden, instead of rolling over the back of a green, stopping on an upslope in some rough, all of a sudden now it runs, you know, 30, 40, 50 feet over the green and they've got this really tough shot to a blind green that they might putt, they might hit a bump and run, they might pitch. Um, you know, it gives them options, but options aren't necessarily always easy. And, and just putting that little bit of doubt in their mind. Um, and we've already heard players talk about that. They, they love that. And, and I think that if we get these close Simone areas right, you're going to see some players putt. Some players hit kind of a bump and run, maybe with a hybrid or three wood or maybe a, a, a little chip and run with a seven iron, but you also may see flop shots. And that's the beauty of Shinnecock Hills is that it really allows the players to show, to show their shot making skills. And I think we're incredibly excited about that. And by the way, 
The other thing it does is it intimidates players. I mean, I, I you know, there's several holes out here that you're just saying, oh my God, if I go over the screen or I go left of it or right of it, I'm, I'm going to no man's land. And, and, you know, if it was rough, they'd know the ball's going to hit and just stick, but it's, that's not the case this week. You get you get maybe more feedback than maybe anyone else in the entire golf world, especially from the pros. There's a lot of a lot of complaining that goes on. I'm sure that some of it gets kind of brushed aside, but I want to know what's the best player feedback you've gotten, or in recent years, feedback you've gotten from specific from the from the players that you it kind of uh, really rang with you and kind of something that you actually did react to. You know what's interesting? One of the things I've noticed over the years. Um, well, first of all, with the U.S. Open, there's always a lot of talk about the golf course. And, you know, part of the reason is it's, you know, it really is golf's ultimate test. It's this is a different week than they experience week to week. They, they've got to be on their game. And if they're not on their game, whether it's their their shot execution or whether it's their course management, uh, this week will expose that. And And, and so. Um, the players always come on, come in a little on edge. And by the way, that, that's not something new. I mean, if you read history, this has been going on for 125 years. I mean, you mm-hmm. go back to the late 1890s and you read about, you know, U.S. Opens played at uh, Myopia Hunt Club. Same things were happening then that now. And, and, you know, you talk to some of the greats from yesteryears, you know, Jack Nicklaus. He loved this event because... He knew it was more than just shot making. It was course management. It was handling your nerves. And, you know, he, he used to think, I, you know, one of the reasons I love the U.S. Open so much is that some of the players come in and they've already, they've already gotten in their head how hard it is or their, you know, whatever feeling about the course. And he'd say, OK, well, I don't have to beat them because they've already beat themselves. And but, you know, I, listen, th- this is, you know, this is more than just as I say, execution, it's a mental test. And um, I think that's one of the beauties, but, you know, back to your question about input uh, from players. Um, There are some incredibly cerebral players that will, will offer things up that absolutely we, we, we will listen and oftentimes do react. Um, But, you know, I, I would also say sometimes you hear, you know, I'll give you an example. Sometimes you hear from players in practice rounds, Hey, you need to speed the greens up. Other players would say, "Hey, these these greens, um, um, they're too fast right now, or they're too firm, or they're too soft." And so, we listen. No doubt, we listen. But I will tell you, we observe more than we listen. So, we're, we want to go out there and practice days, and frankly, we do this in championship days too. We want to see how balls react. I mean. If, for instance, uh, players are hitting mid-irons into a green, we might want a ball, you know, struck properly out of the fairway to kind of bounce, bounce, and then begin to stop. Um, And so, you know, if you're just talking to a player, you may not get that versus if you can actually go out and witness it yourself and, and understand where the firmness of the green is, where we want it to be, and you know, sometimes maybe we'll soften green up because it is getting too firm or vice versa. Um, we will firm it up because we're just seeing balls stop too quickly. So it's, it's you know, the player input comes both from us listening, but also, um, as, as I say candidly, it's more watching than listening. 
Your last couple here, I know uh, you're, you're pressed for time here, but I know you're, you're a bit of a history buff, and I was just curious as to what are some of your favorite courses that, like, in a perfect world, you'd love to see a, a men's U.S. Open hosted at but are considered maybe too short by modern standards? Oh, boy. You know, if you go back, in some cases, maybe they are too short by modern standards. In some cases, maybe you just don't have enough space to put all the operations in, but you know, if if you go up and down the list of of the greatest golf courses in this country, I mean, think about some of the classics that are in that top fifty list or top hundred. You know, we can all think of some courses you'd say, "Wow, what would it be like if you had a U.S. Open at X?" I mean, you know, like a Cypress Point is an example that you know it doesn't have enough space for a U.S. Open, and and it doesn't really have enough length anymore. But it architecturally is absurdly good. It is just a great course that Alistair McKenzie designed that, um, that's right on the ocean, that's a sandy site that's exposed to wind. And, you know, it's, it's one of the world's greatest walks and, and, and architectural pieces. But, you know, it, it can't host it because it just simply doesn't have enough room for all the operations that you need at a U.S. Open. But... You know, that said, there are, you know, our, our list right now is so good of sites we have that, frankly, we have more sites that want to host the U.S. Open than we have room for. And, and so um, I guess that's a, that's a good problem to have. But there, there are certainly, you know, we all know if, if, if we follow golf and architecture, there, there are some really cool sites out there that would be fun to have a U.S. Open, but probably will never happen. All right, last one. I'm dying to know. Do you stay in touch with uh, with the Jungle Bird from Olympic Club in 2012? <laughs> you know, it was, what's interesting about that is that when that all happened, it it uh, I think back that all of a sudden I, I see this person come on right in front of the camera. You have Bob Costas of NBC doing an interview with, with Webb Simpson and all of a sudden this bird man came up on it. And my first thought is what, you know, what is this guy doing? He's ruining Webb's big moment. <laughs> and, and so I'm looking around and like, there's nobody going to do anything. So I just almost instinctively go out and grab him. And then as I'm pulling him off the green, I'm thinking, what am I going to do with this guy? And you know, bottom line, we tossed him in the, or I tossed him in the bunker, but, um, but I look back and then I, you know, I quickly went back kind of behind the green and I'm thinking, I cannot believe that just happened. Pretend like it didn't happen. And <laughs> anyways, but he did what, what's really interesting is he, he called me maybe two, three months afterwards. And he's really, um, and it's hard to believe, but very nice guy. He's highly educated. He was from England. And, and this was all about... Um, rainforest deep basically deforestation he was he was really on a kick to say i'm going to show up at the world's biggest sporting events and he's he went to a notre dame football game and ran out in the field he's been to, to to i think he did a world cup soccer um i forget where else he's been but he was actually very nice and i took his call and we chatted for about 10 minutes and haven't heard from him since since but uh you know it's funny i i, I you know Graham McDowell, who won our 2010 U.S. Open, uh, he thought that was so funny. He sent me, he sent me one, uh, basically a, uh, the same hat that this guy had on, which is a, a um, the uh, U.K. flag. What, what do you call it? The Union, Union Jack, Jack flag. 
and, and uh, a picture of it. And I, I do have that in my office. That, so it's, I've tried to kind of forget that, but I look back and with some good laughs. Uh, it makes us laugh every, every time. So, uh, Mike, thank you, uh, thank you so much for your time. Best of luck this week with the U.S. Open, and we'll, uh, we'll definitely be tuned in and uh, hope to do this again sometime. Okay, Chris, great being with you. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers, thanks. Okay, take care. All right, guys, what did you think about uh, what Mr. Davis had to say today? Uh, I loved it. Always, always a fan. I think I could listen to him. Uh, he's a bit of a filibusterer. I think he, uh, <laughs> which is good. I, I don't, you know, no offense to yourself, but I, I'd rather hear from him than from that's, you. So. That's the point. Uh, yeah, he he definitely is not uh, not a short answer guy, but he he's very thoughtful and very uh, calculated, but genuine. I think is is kind of my take from him. I, I'm I'm a huge fan of listening to him talk. Yeah, I've learned more about him just in the kind of the research process too. I didn't realize he was like this guy from pennsylvania that went to georgia southern i imagine there was some culture shock there so i think he's he's got a pretty interesting story loquacious even that's the word that comes to mind for me i enjoyed uh yeah i enjoyed the interview i wish it was you know i wish we could have a little bit more of his time i thought he was going to be like kind of stiff and buttoned up and i thought you know at least maybe today we we caught him and he was just very open and warm and i I think much more personality shown through than what i was expecting i thought i thought that uh you know from a journalism perspective i thought you asking about the jungle bird was an important question um i thought i was want to know i I was was, gonna be pissed if you didn't ask i thought it was a disgrace you didn't hold his feet to the fire on backstopping (laughs) personally shockingly in 25 minutes could not tackle all the issues i'm I'm kidding um no i think it would be great to sit down with him one time and sometime not during u.s open week probably and just get his backstory and hear about him personally a lot a lot lot of different stories i can't imagine that guy's the stories that guy has to tell but he does he's he knows he's doing a lot of media this week and it's a spokesman role and he's going to hit hit the talking points but uh i think we all agree this is kind of a kind of a different level of excitement for the u.s open going back to a course like shinnecock than like some of the mystery courses like aaron hills and chambers bay it's crazy it's been 14 years since they've been back there I mean, it's kind of the quintessential, along with Oakmont, I think, the quintessential U.S. Open course. Yeah. yeah, site. So It's been thrilling. Speaking of 14 years ago, it's been just absolutely delightful to watch the footage from that 04 <laughs> U.S. Open of balls rolling off the greens. And I mean, it's just that it really like – I know, you know, they, they'd like to have that one over, but <laughs> as a fan uh, who enjoys watching Carnage, I've, I've been a big fan of watching that stuff again. It's amazing how, and I guess Oakmont has hosted two U.S. Opens since Shinnecock has hosted its last one. I'd imagine the 14 years gap, 14 year gap, is a lot to do with how poorly the one went in 2004. But I think you know, when we were up at the media day, how much they talked about kind of this being a new era and all they've learned from that. There is a lot of we see a lot of like mea culpa, admitting the fault in a lot of the mistakes they made. It does seem like. They've learned a lot from this process. I mean, Faldo said, welcome to the new age. <laughs> Twice. Welcome to the new age. Welcome to the new age. That yeah. could, this could be what he was referencing. That, that might have been what it, <laughs> teeing it up for the folks at Fox. I Great art takes a, lot of time, a long time to process sometimes <laughs> and, and interpret. But I think a lot of what Mike says about golf course setup, and he gets a lot, they've got a lot of criticism for widening the fairways at Aaron Hills, which we can talk a bit about Aaron Hills. Um, and we're going to see a much wider golf course, obviously, this year than we saw in 2004. But he explained kind of the reasoning behind that and why, you know, some of those averages that are thrown off by like the eighth hole is extremely wide. But it's, it's, you stay on that tee box and it's not a hole where you feel like you need the width, right? And we stand on like that third tee box, which is a 500 yard par four. It was like, 
tight, just <laughs> legally tight. And so it's not like it's just going to be bomb. I don't know. Just the reaction of some of the caddies been out there so far this week. Like it's going to be a bomber's paradise. I don't necessarily no, think and I th- that's the I case. I think that there's some funny kind of stats going off. Like, you know, I remember when Azinger, I think it was Azinger, was, was going through on the podcast and kind of rattling off some of the widths of the fairways and stuff. And he was talking about number eight. He's like, you know, that one's 65 yards. And when you're looking at it on a list, like, yeah, that seems ridiculous. But when you see the hole and it's like, well, no, it's a it's a really short, like angular par four like that's why the fairway is set up like that it's not you know a bombs away kind of like hit it wherever you want sort of thing it, it makes a big difference so just like anything when you look at it on paper it's a lot different than when you look at it in and the reality. part you want to hit the ball into is not necessarily right. 60 yeah, exactly. yards wide so it's not yeah it's not no i think i mean we said it before but i think uh and this maybe kind of leads into the next point but if they get the conditions that they want like this seems like it is the absolute perfect kind of golf course for this tournament and the thing that's interesting about that, and I've been thinking about it more and more, and, you know, when you have a golf course like that where it's so dependent on conditions, and by that I mean, you know, getting firm and fast and, and not, you know, getting the right amount of wind and the right direction wind and all that stuff, uh, you know, when you don't have that stuff, you have to look for, like, controlling those constants. And that's where I think you've seen the U.S. Open kind of become what it was in, you know, the 80s, 90s, where it was, you know, trees – you know, having having tree-lined fairways, it doesn't matter which way the wind is going or, or, you know, less so. Whereas, you know, it's just interesting when you – it's it's kind of a risk when you go to courses like this that are so dependent on conditions and wind and all that stuff. But when it pays off, it pays off. And at Aaron Hills, it didn't. And, you know, there was – because it was soft and because it wasn't windy and stuff. But, you know, when it does hit, it, it should be as good as it possibly gets. Yeah, Aaron Hills got rain week of i think in the yeah. week prior and i've been tracking the weather in long island and there's not been rain in the last couple of weeks well, we got saw... rain and then it just didn't the wind just didn't blow. right well we got we got a... some reports from some caddies that it's like you know 1978 british open like puffs of dust you know as the ball's landing out there now which is Sick. ideal i mean <laughs> yeah. when we saw the course a few weeks ago we were kind of you know we got an idea for the layout but we both kind of walked away saying like we didn't feel like we actually played the golf course that these guys are going to play because you could hit it in spots around the green and you're back spinning the ball up the up slopes like it's going down the hill but you're back spinning it up the hill because it was break. so soft no it's it it not that hard of a shot really <laughs> um but uh but i that's what I'm saying is the, the, the course is defined by hitting it in these spots that you're going to make bogey from like a hundred percent and you might make triple from it. So I think they needed that cooperation from mother nature so far they've got it. And if they get the right amount of wind for this, it's going to be probably like the best possible U S open test you could have. Randy, when, uh, when the U S open it, when you hear U S open, what course pops into mind for you? Uh, Oakmont. Yeah. That, that's, it's pretty quick. Shinny, yeah. Shinny's not far behind. Is that a weird way of pronouncing Aaron Hills or what? <laughs> no, I, more than anything, I'm a, I'm a I'm a car crash guy. Like five six over as a winning score is that's what I'm that's what I'm here for. You're, you want you want the carnage? Yeah, I want the carnage. I want I want it to be brutal. Par's irrelevant. I hope this. Well, not not to me. But carnage <laughs> isn't even. You know, you can have carnage without having crazy low score or. You know, with with crazy low scores, even if there's just some holes that are yeah. a little bit extreme, yeah. For sure. like that little par three at at Aaron Hills was sick. I yeah. love that hole. Well, that's what it's, it's looking back. I did a little research on Aaron Hills and stuff, and seeing, of course, sixteen under par one, and there was a decent amount of guys, you know, resting at eight under par, and there was a, a lot of decently low scores. But seeing. Six, I think six of the top ten in the world got ejected in the first two rounds and did not make the cut. Like Rory shooting seventy eight, and 
Rom um, didn't make the cut. DJ missed the cut. And it was like the scores were the the high scores were all out there, right? It was like a really strong dividing line of if you had your game on and dialed in, you could take it pretty deep. But man, if you weren't like you were hacking out of that fescue for the two days that you were there, and then you were shipped out of town. I think if you put guys on a par seventy two course and you get the soft conditions and not the wind, the scores were inevitably going to be low. And I think if they had set it up any harder than they did, and if the wind blew harder, and if it got any drier than that. Um, then that could have been a recipe for disaster. And I think they are going to hopefully... I, I take issue with the word disaster. I, I, you know, from my point of view, that's awesome. <laughs> that's not a disaster. I, I think the disaster is what we got, which was a kind of an anticlimactic, boring U.S. Open from that standpoint. Can we talk about... Uh, so sorry to interrupt no, you there, okay. but I, I think, you know, from my perspective at least, I, I think the disaster is means something different. Can we talk about... Uh, I, I had already forgotten Fescue Gate last year. Yeah. Where on Tuesday morning before the US Open last year, they were out there with like weed whackers knocking down the Fescue because complete, players complete were disgrace. complaining about it. I don't know if it was because the it's players were complaining about it or yeah. or if it was just, you know, always part of the plan. Like they kind of led on to believe. But. but it's like once you look at the forecast and say, oh, the wind's not going to blow, then what's the reasoning for not having that? Right. Yeah. That you know higher fescue there well, I, think, I think it still played really tough out of the fescue yeah the issue sure. was the top guys were not hitting yeah. it in the fescue at all because the fairways were so wide right and i think i think mike talked about that on the podcast a little bit too that um you know i think that's like what you get at the u.s open that you just don't get at other tournaments it's just this hugely serious dissection of the golf course which is just from like an absurdity standpoint, it's just it's the best. Everybody gets it. to put their their expert <laughs> yeah, hat on. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, I just don't understand the the rush to, you know, at Chambers Bay and Aaron Hills. What's the rush to have a U.S. Open there? Yeah. Like, let it grow in for five years or That's ten fair. years or whatnot. We have a plethora of awesome golf courses. Like, I mean, shit. L.A. Country Club's having it in 2023 for the first time ever, and that that club's been around for decades. You know. Yeah, I, that's, I wanted to kind of get in with that with Mike, and we didn't get a chance to, but just what is kind of the philosophy in bringing in two new courses in, in three years and whether or not he views them as a success. And I think just inherently when you don't have the classic element to a course, players are even less likely to, less likely to hold back on their opinion on it. They have no membership to adhere to or anything like that. And there's no tradition there that you're stomping on when you just shred Chambers Bay greens, which – deserved it yeah. for for in fairness sake but um i think I, go ahead sorry i wonder if the promise to host a u.s open helped in the development of those courses yeah oh, for sure so. for yeah. sure but i don't you think, think it, to like it new stadiums immediate either well like yeah. baseball stadiums like oh if you build a new stadium we'll give you the all-star yeah, game yeah exactly like yeah five years from now it's just yeah, kind I don't of an think impetus you can kick it down to, like yeah we'll build the course and you'll host one in 20 years i don't think anyone's really signing up for that deal but it's yeah. also that, that that like that introduces a host of different variables then that aren't present in other tournaments like you look at you know they at chambers bay they hadn't been through a bunch of summers where right. you know with totally. the rescue. Oh, for sure. No, I'm not saying yeah. it was right or wrong, yeah. but yeah, yeah, I think it's yeah, it's, it's it a weird. It just seems issue. like a big event to to be to leave all that stuff to chance. Yeah. Totally, especially when there are blueprints. But I think kind of going in in line with the distance discussion that you know surrounds the USGA is where you know the last 20 years we've entered this era where balls are going obviously way further than they ever have in the past. That that sh- that list of courses is strengthening is strength 
shrinking, shrinking, just tighten their shrinkage, just shrinkage going on. Uh, so they're yeah, maybe there aren't. They're kind of worried about just sticking to too tight. I don't think you can have too tight of a rotation though. I think the op- the, the British Open does a great job with that, and they don't. It never feels too repetitive to go to the old course every five or six years or anything like that. But um, I don't know. I think the the key has got to be, and I know Phil, you were talking about wanting the carnage. I think we all want. Wanted to play, <laughs> wanted to play difficult, Big Randy. But the issue is when the great shots aren't getting rewarded, and I think that's kind of what they feared. What happened at 04 and in, in opens in the past, like at Marion and whatnot. There's just some holes that you can hit a absolutely perfect shot and play it right in the way that you think you should be play it, and it not work out. And I think that's that's the dividing line of you know, I'm fine with a good shot getting ejected because of how hard the course is, but. A great one. I think there should be some some reward to that. So it's a it's a. I don't know how you how you find that line though. That's got to be the hardest. thing. I think that's got to be the hardest. Yeah, the hardest thing in golf to do. You got to fly so so close to the sun. Yeah, you got to be a habitual line stepper. <laughs> well, I was gonna say if a shot doesn't turn out well, is it really a great shot? I mean, not to get philosophical, but if it's not, you can possible. say it was a great play. But if it didn't turn out well, then it's not a great play. If, if, if there's literally no option to get it in position, though, that's kind of where, like, some of the Chambers Bay shots where guys were landing the ball left of the fairway and it was missing the fairway to the right, <laughs> that's kind of like, <laughs> all right, what are we do? What are we actually doing here? I think Gary, Chambers Bay I think Gary Player had care. the best take on Chambers Bay. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I don't know. Yeah, sorry, go it's ahead. It's a travesty. <laughs> it's actually a tragedy. I just like that these pros for maybe one week a year just aren't in complete control. And to watch guys like freak out and melt because they're not in complete control is fascinating. That's why I think I it, it's great when it encourages playing the ball on the ground. Yeah. When the ball's on the ground, they don't quite know exactly what it's going to do. And whoever's most in control of their golf ball when the ball's on the ground is, in my mind, the best you know, the best approximation of who should win the U.S. Open. Speaking of which, Big Randall, I know you love predictions. Who's going to win the U.S. Open? Well, of course, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, but, but I think in my heart, in my heart, I believe that Mickelson is going to win <laughs> a, a U.S. Open. And it seems like Shinnecock would be just about an ideal place for him to do that. Is so. he going to go full, uh, full button down this week? Uh, it's gonna be kind of cool. That's a good there. question. You know what? I'll say this, and I was thinking of this watching him in Memphis. Some of his outfits are disgraced, <laughs> and he he wears these like all navy ensembles and With the navy shoes, bag grays. It's actually a tragedy. He needs to he needs to be white and black and just be really crisp this week. I'm a firm believer when he dresses well, he plays well. He's got his so, aggressive colors on. Yeah, he's got to leave. He's got to leave the. Can't get cute with it this week. I'm gonna have to fact check you on that because I I feel like I remember him playing well when he's got like the really ugly brown pants, or like the striped pa- like the like the candy striper pants. In a, I, in a big tournament, maybe not. Maybe I'm misremembering. Like, do, you're, you remember, you're, do you remember you're, his Open Championship outfit? Yeah, you're right. Just black and white. Just black. Gotta look good. And you was. know the thing is, uh, bust some pink stripes out, maybe. Well, studies have shown that college teams play more aggressive when they wear black. <laughs> <laughs> that might, is that the best Phil quote of all time? It might be. They get, going no, they get into more the, penalties. Going into the final round of the Masters. Yeah, they they play more aggressive. They get more penalties when they wear black. So I'm I'm gonna be wearing black tomorrow for the final round. <laughs> yeah. Like I think that's when I fell in love with Phil. That's when I was like, <laughs> all right, I'm I get it. I see what you're doing now, and I'm I'm in. It's working for yeah. me. Tron, do you have a pick? 
Uh, I guess Randall, what, yeah. what was your pick then? Is Phil your pick with your head and your heart? Yeah, I, I think Mickelson and Spieth will probably share it. Okay. <laughs> Two whole playoff. Two. No, they'll, <laughs> they'll they'll end tied. I'm just going through some some odds here. Brandon Grace, thirty to one. That's ahead or same odds as Matsuyama. Beware, Phil. there is a train that runs relatively close to Shinnecock Hills, though. <laughs> you, you go, gotta folks. you gotta wonder if there's some scar tissue. Randy, there. I'm surprised you didn't say Bryson. You're a big Bryson guy. Yeah, he might be. What does the data say? He he he's he's trending. Y'all watch out. Yeah, he's in a spot. <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't be shocked. Our caddy said that he was out there like about a couple weeks before we were out there for the media day, and he said he shot sixty six out there from back tees all the way back. I would imagine he would play the back tees, but yeah, I think yeah, I think he's going to play it all the way back this week, <laughs> probably. He's teeing it forward. Um, you know, my heart says leash. 50, he's 50 to 1 right now. I'm going to probably throw 100 bucks on him. Um, cool, that, man. That's cool, man. <laughs> but uh, my head says either Justin Rose. Trust fund Tron. <laughs> Tron has hundreds of dollars. You throw it around. Uh, Justin Rose, or I think John Rom makes some noise. Deej? I was going to say Leishman as well. Um, I, I think it is absolutely perfect for him. I mean, he's been playing, playing well. Uh, I, you know, sorry to be... Uh, you know, kind of tag team your your take there, but I, I was going to say. I mean, him I too. pick Leishman for every single. Well, That's I true. was going to say Leishes. Leishes. I don't know if he. Uh, I don't know if it's because of lack of confidence, but he was thirsty for the bump this week. I ran into him memorial. He's like, "Yeah, if you want to, if you want to chat on the podcast before we go out there." I was like, "Why don't you go win it, and then we'll do it?" But it, and like looking back at it, I was like, "He just wants the podcast bump." It could be. It could be. It could be a good Norin week, also. It could be, very much so. Um, Randy's, I picked... Randy's grimacing at that idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't want him winning the U.S. American Open? <laughs> no, nah, I don't. Th- I, no, I just don't feel it's a Norman week. Okay. <laughs> uh, I picked JT before the season started. I'm sticking with that one. Um, I think it's a good fit for him. But again, let me emphasize: we don't know. We I have mean, no idea. The, the greatest player of all time has kind of been bucking his head a lot lately too. He's coming. I was say Tron going with Justin Rose. No, I, and just, I, I like, my not head. even. No, I just I'm trying to slow play. I don't want to jinx DJ. I don't want to. That's you know. Leaves me wanting. <laughs> <laughs> I got leash for Carnoustie. That's the one I had just teed up for him. I yeah. think it makes a lot of sense. But. And, then, and then Rory and Fleetwood are sharing the title in St. Louis. Okay, for the PGA. Yeah. A lot of major winners this year. Yeah. Uh, what did you guys think of? <laughs> Let me ask you this. If it is a, a quintessential U.S. Open, who, who are two or three guys that kind of fit that profile of a Retief Goose in? Somebody that's kind Rose. of grinder. Rose, for Rose, sure. Like yeah. Rose, like that was the first I thought so. I had. As a, gr- as, a Gruden grinder. Yeah, yeah. As soon as you could said be a good Rose. Ricky week. And again, I'm just <laughs> barking up the wrong tree. Up, just lobbing it up for <laughs> really. Yeah, putting Randy on his back foot. Uh, who else? Paul Casey. See him being in that in that profile. You know who I think would be a. I'd be way in on him contending, in New York, Poulter. Yeah, that'd be fun. Mm-hmm. And that would be rich. That would yeah. be just thick. Rich and compelling. Yeah. What did you guys think of Retief Goosen not getting a special exemption from the USGA? I thought it was USGA? a disgrace. What's the, what's the possible reasoning behind not getting it? There's got to be something there. I don't I understand I thought he got why one last they year. gave him one. He got one in 2016. 2016. You can get mo- multiple. Yeah. I mean, I think winning. I mean, yeah, you can. 
winning two yeah. U.S. Opens might. They probably didn't run it, want to run it back that quickly with him. I think everyone probably forgot that he won two. Yeah. I think including like the USGA might have been like, oh shit, he won two of these things. <laughs> oh gosh. They're trying to just one. maybe they don't count. Oh four. Forgive and forget. Oh four. Yeah. Don't want to acknowledge <laughs> it. You know? Just delete it from the history. That has an asterisk in USGA history. Well, so who else has has gotten special exemptions? Hale Irwin won the U.S. Open on a special exemption. Did he really? 1990. Whoa. Never knew that. It's the first time hearing of this. <laughs> there you have it. Uh, all right. Here's here's a couple names that have gotten special exemptions, if you guys are ready. Uh, ben Hogan. Who's he? Sam Sneed. He was the clubmaker guy. <laughs> Sam Sneed. Arnold Palmer. Aseo Aoki. Arnie Wood. Scott for Plank in 1986. Scott for Plank in 86? He finished T15. No. But according to USGA.org, he might have been an amateur. Uh, oh, I bet he won. That was when he won on tour as an amateur, and I bet that's why. Okay. David Ishi, don't know who that is. Hale Irwin, 1990, confirmed. Tron, teaching finished Tron. first. Jack Nicholas, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, Jack. Jack got a lot of special exemptions. Well, that's I think like, I would Jack? think they'd One, be wanting two, to normalize three, four, it because they're going to have to start six. giving cat exemptions starting J- next year. Jack got seven. Special exemption. That's a lot. Uh, and his best finish on one was T27. Not think, good. think of the guys that could have got that spot. <laughs> uh, oh, no, I take that back. He got even more. He got one in 2000, too. Oh, that was a pebble. That's why. Uh, there were like five of them. In two, sorry to, to commandeer this with just reading things off the internet here, but 2000, all these people got special exemptions. Aaron Baddeley, Michael Campbell, Jack Nicholas, Greg Norman, Curtis Strange and Tom Watson. Why? Sick. I mean, Watson anyways. and Nicholas. You wow. can see what, yeah, anyways. And there's and it, the list goes on from there. Watson, Hale Irwin, Raymond Floyd got one in 2004 at Shinnecock. Uh, and Retief Goosen got sense. one in 2016. All right. Maybe, maybe they told him, like, all right, do you want to use your special exemption this year? Because we're only going to give you one. I don't know. I think it's fine. I think getting one is is more than fair. I just don't understand. Els and Furyk, they, bo- they gave both of them an exemption this year. Why not Retief? Like I understand if you don't want to give any if you're you know if you don't want the field to be too big or anything like that. But if you're going to give two guys that have won previous U.S. Opens, yeah, Ernie's won two, Retief won at this course. Doesn't make sense. It's a fair question. It's a disgrace. We haven't mentioned the cat. What do you have to say? Well, is he gonna? Is it, will he make the cut? I think so. I'm still worried about the accuracy off the tee. I mean, when Cat misses, he misses badly and i think some of the courses he does well at are the courses that you can miss so badly that you're like far enough right that you actually have a shot and at shinnecock if you're missing you're going to be in the fescue every single time and there's no like go way right go way right and actually works out i'm a little bit disappointed i'm just going through here on wikipedia i'm a little bit disappointed when cat's u.s open record he's only won it three times Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's the last kind of, major he's won. I kind of attributed him I, more U.S. Open titles. I got a funny feeling. I think I think things are aligning for the cat. He's. I'm not saying he's going to win. We but see catmate. I think he's going to be uh, top ten. Can we talk about how it's been ten years since he won a major? It's a lot of years. <laughs> <laughs> On a broken leg. Can you like? Can you believe that sentence? He hasn't won a major in a I decade. Can barely drink the last time he won a major. I'm trying to think what I was legally doing. Does anybody have a dark horse? Can we talk dark horse? Cat? Bryson is kind of a good dark horse. He's not a dark horse. He's 35 to 1. Well, I think the in the memorial. general public. That's a disgrace. <laughs> I'll, get I got that one. take out of here. <laughs> Kyle F. and Stanley. Yeah. I think it could work out this week. I really do. 
I think it's going to be a ball striking, a heavy emphasis on ball striking, and the guy that's going to be this close, closest to the hole after two shots at this open is going to make the biggest difference. Is, can, is, can can't lay, uh, is Cantley a dark horse? I think that works. He's going to get ejected by the New York crowds. If, Do you oh, think? He might. No. You think yeah. we're going to see Sergio 2.0? Yeah, for sure. This isn't like Beth Page crowds, though, yeah. at Shinnecock, right? This is like the great Gatsby crowd. Is it? I mean, it's not like they just erect some wall. No, I know, but it's not the same. Out. Like Beth Page was, I don't know. I don't remember 04 being that, not anything like, like 02 and 09. Well, I think part of it is when you're in tight with like the corridors yeah. of Beth Page. That's you know, true. People are kind true. of, versus things are out in the open at Shinnecock. Yeah. I'm nervous for Patrick. Really? Yeah. yeah. He should be nervous. I mean, it's... He and Jimmy Walker should be nervous. Oh, man. I don't think the New York crowd strikes me as the crowd super amped up about backstopping, but... <laughs> hey, one can hope, right? But the amount of times that Cantley looks at a target when he's standing over the ball, it's it's remarkable. I mean, I got the stop clock out when I was at, at Muirfield. I didn't want to say anything about it just because I'm already sick of people just mentioning it every walk of the, hey, every got, step he takes. You got to remember, this is shot clock master season we're in right this now. This is true. This is true. We're living in a uh, in a post shot clock era. So, uh, if Cantley is in contention, without a doubt, he's going to be hearing from the crowd in some capacity. I got two guys. Okay, Francesco Molinari playing really, really well right yeah. now. Uh, I think he's worth taking a flyer on. And Sam Burns, six hundred to one. Oof. Wow. Yeah, I like that. Do I'm we want to do uh, who's not going to win again? Because this went so well for the Masters. Did you want to lead us off? Uh, well, okay. Double let me, down. Let me reiterate. Uh, you know, okay, I'm going to say Patrick Reed doesn't win. <laughs> he doesn't win the first two majors of the year. What's he done since the Masters? He's done pretty well, I think. He took a, took a little time off, but it's been... Uh... Let me remind you guys, the point of this is to pick someone who could win. Correct. But say that they're not going to. Yes. He's only played three times since the Masters. Who's, your, who's not going to win? place at right Wells Fargo. I don't think... 41st at Players, 29th at Memorial. Oh, cool, man. <laughs> uh, I would say Rory won't win. Okay. I'll say Big Cat. Uh, oh, God. Now I'm thinking Speep might win. <laughs> he might win. Actually, we you know? kind of shocking that we haven't mentioned him. Uh, I, wait, 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 wait. I mentioned him. Jason Day will not win. Okay. That's that's safe. He might. <laughs> he might. Yeah. All right. This is good. These are a lot of guys that might win. All right. We're on the record. You heard it yeah. here first. So. All right, we're going to be doing live shows here from the Kill House uh, at least Thursday through Sunday. We're going to try to get one out Wednesday evening as well. Uh, unsure on that as of this, this moment. But we need Comcast to start bucking. Yeah, we need to fix our upload speed. has got uh, got some issues here. Uh, dropping, if you're listening to this, it's coming out Tuesday. Today is the first episode of Taurus Sauce, our series about our trip down to Australia uh, that has been a lot of time in the editing bay for us. So we would appreciate if you guys would swing by the YouTube channel Check that out. Uh, this is the the dream of DJ Pie. This this series and it's coming to life. And uh, yeah. hopefully one episode a week for the next uh, eight weeks. That's right. Swing by the Le- YouTube channel like and subscribe. And subscribe. Yeah. Yes. Big shout out to uh, our editor Matt Matt, Matt Golden. Golden. Uh, we bucked brought, his head. Bucked his head hard on uh, getting the series ready and the uh, Golden Boy couldn't have, couldn't have done it without the Golden Child. Shout out to the folks at BMW for yeah. the uh, for the support on this project. And uh, it's it's we got hopefully a lot of a lot more seasons of this to come. But uh, it's a lot. It was a big. It was a lot to take in for a first time going around it. We learned a lot in the process, but but uh, we had a little fun too. We had a little fun <laughs> along the way, but uh, we're pretty proud of the uh, of the final product. So, swing on by, check that out, and uh, in the meantime, we'll be checking in with you guys later this week. Crack on. Cheers. Crack on.
Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect any 